Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 222 of the Chills of Will podcast. Such a pleasure today to be joined by Andrew Leland. Andrew Leland is a writer, audio producer, editor, and teacher living in Western Massachusetts. His first book, which will be the focus of our conversation today, is The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, which is about the world of blindness and figuring out his place in it, and was published to great acclaim ever since by in July 2023 by Penguin Press. He has produced audio for a range of entities, including an interview with the deaf-blind poet John Lee Clark for the New Yorker Radio Hour, a story about disabled astronauts for Radiolab, and a story about reading technologies for the blind for 99% Invisible. From 2013 to 2019, he hosted and produced the Organist, an arts and culture podcast for KCRW. He has taught nonfiction writing, radio, and digital storytelling at Smith College, UMass Amherst, and the University of Missouri, and he's been an editor at The Believer since 2003, also edited books from McSweeney's and Chronicle Books. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. It's a pleasure to talk to you. KCRW, is that was like 89.9 in LA? It still is. Yeah. It I mean, is. I think those are okay. the, uh, don't ask me the frequency, but they're okay. definitely still trucking. And it's definitely on that end of the dial. Okay. I should know that. 89.9. You know, it's always, it's always like, you know, Mojave, Antelope Valley, like right, it's right, different right. numbers and all around. But right. I think in LA it's eighty nine nine. Yeah. Well, no, I put you on the spot, and I should I should know. I lived there for twelve years in LA, but I was I was always like kind of cool that it seemed that it had two legit NPR like public radio stations. There's eighty nine point three and eighty nine point nine. I think eighty nine three is is KPCC. Yes, they. I don't know. If, I don't know how I feel about. It. They actually changed their name. LAist. Yes. Yes. All right. You know, doesn't sound like a radio station, but then like again, we live in. We live in this weird futures land, so maybe that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, the the little I've listened when I'm visit is the quality is not you know being compromised. So all good. No. All good. Yeah. yeah, I think um, of them as like the more like they're holding down the like harder news end of the dial, and sure. KCRW is stronger sure. on the music and arts and culture stuff. So. Yeah, KCRW has like the like a resident DJ and all that. I think right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really cool and and accomplished and and very career. We'll talk a little bit more about, of course, we'll talk a lot more about the book, which came out in July. I'd love to know about kind of how it all, how it all began as far as being a, a reader, a writer, a, a communicator, you know, with audio producing and all of that. Was your house, uh, you know, heavy on on books and, and the written word? Um, I know you have a famous grandfather, the, the playwright Neil Simon. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you going to plays every weekend or was it more? <laughs> what was your kind of a journey with reading and writing, especially as a kid? Not every weekend, but I definitely got to go to some Broadway openings as a kid, uh, which was, you know, it's funny, like, I don't think of those as formative experiences, but they surely were. Um, you know, I think just like idolizing him and, and 
you know, whether I wanted to idolize him or not, you know, which I did, like, I, you know, mm-hmm. but he just had such a center of gravity, the way that my mom talked about him and just talked about his work and talked about his like, place in the culture. Uh, you know, so I definitely grew up with this sense of, of my grandfather as like, somebody who was doing something important. And the thing that he was doing was with language, uh, right. you know, and, and specifically with, with, with comedy. I mean, his plays were, when I watched them as a kid, they were very funny, but also, you know, there was some intense uh, other, other, other feelings and other genres in there too. So certainly that was influential. And yeah, my mom was a reader. Um, so there was, you know, solid bookshelves around and my parents split up when I was two and visiting my dad, you know, my dad was always super involved in media. Um, he was an early producer at USA uh, network, like it's sort of oh, like okay. the dawn of cable television. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like he was a columnist for Videography magazine. Um, and so, like, I feel like there was sort of like these two influences. Like on my mom's side, it was very much about like comedy writing and that sort of like, if not literary, at least like you know theatrical. You know, like mm-hmm. think you know like talking about you know Samuel Beckett was in the mix sometimes, and uh, I remember like finding Chekhov on the on the shelf. And then my dad's house, it was much more about like dude, like, check this out. Like, you can use a computer to make your own magazine, which has, like, never been possible before in the history of the world. And I was like, whoa, that's cool, too. So, you know, and I think if I look at my career and sort of what happened since, uh, there is a sort of um, marrying of those two kind of approaches to language and to, to communication. Yeah, such a cool combination, man. I'm talking about, like, your dad with, like, USA Network. Remember when you had to be, like, rich to get cable? Like only the oh. rich, only the rich people in the neighborhood had you know had HBO especially like right? HBO is a status symbol oh yeah my yeah God, it really was <laughs> like rich I was just reading a book this morning and the author was talking about I think he was talking about like Nick at Night and mm-hmm. he dropped like one other cable reference and it's funny like I wouldn't I didn't really put my finger on it but now that you say that I was like okay you are sort of like placing your there's like a class yeah uh, sign there a little bit. And, and you know, it lasted, I don't know, four or five or seven years. You know what I mean? It wasn't like an eternal thing, but it was definitely like, oh man, you know, they have, you know, the kids down the block. Oh my God. What, what was it that you were reading, you got into high school, even in the college that really, mm. that really inspired you, challenged you, maybe even made you think I can do this too? My aunt, my mom's sister, I remember one year, I was probably a freshman, sophomore in high school. And for, I don't know, it, it must've been my birthday she just got me this stack of books and because I, I think by then like i was sort of exhibiting like lasting writerly tendencies you know uh-oh, uh oh those LW, so she was those like lwts those lasting writer tendencies oh man <laughs> <laughs> and it was just an amazing gift like i think she just went to borders you know and was mm-hmm. like what can we give this kid that's going to just like blow his mind and in retrospect it was like such a thoughtful stack and because it was like it, there were these like weird deep cuts you know it wasn't like she gave me like you know how you get gifts like that sometimes where it's like, here's Dostoevsky and right, Mozart right. and just like, you know, not that those are bad gifts, right? But sure. like she gave me, I remember it was like Murakami's The Elephant Vanishes oh. and a novel by Stanley Elkin called, um, oh God, I don't remember which Elkin she got me, but it might've been one of his story collections. And what else was in that pile? I think David Foster Wallace's oh, man. supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Ooh. And um, maybe Jonathan Lethem was in there, you know, and it was just like, it was just like, you know, like she was reading the New Yorker and like Mm. probably like a bunch of small magazines. And it was like this awesome, you know, I'm sure like if you were 
an adult at that time, you'd be like, great. Like these are like the interesting writers from the New Yorker. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not to like sell my aunt out. I love her deeply, Mm -hmm. you know, but it was like, for me, it was just like totally opened up a new world. And, uh, and not even like open up a new world. Like I didn't, like I had already had inklings of these things, but Mm -hmm. it was just, it was like definitely, it was a crash landing. And, uh, and, and, you know, each of those books I feel like opened up pathways to, to more books. And Mm. that, that was, that was definitely a turning point for me, I think. I have a major beef with the word curate. I feel like curate is so overused these days, but like, but such a curated book, um, book packet, huh? For you, like book package. Oh yeah. I think curation. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it, you know, you could call it, I mean, I, I, you know, I've worked for a long time as a magazine editor and, you know, there's like an editorial gesture in there it's like i'm gonna edit together like a syllabus for you um yeah and it's so valuable uh to have somebody guide you like that you know and that's really just what a teacher is it's like Hmm. they build the syllabus and then they they kind of like walk you through it a little bit and and i was getting a really lovely version of that from my aunt Top top two or three for me for like a comfort read. Like I've I've been sick recently and just bedridden. It's just like I go to um, a very fun thing. This specifically, mm. specifically BS that essay. You know the yeah the titular ones. Like um, yeah, just just so much to discover every time. It's like wow, mm. man. Yeah, yeah. That was if you're asking me about high school. Like that, uh, I was definitely having a deep David Foster Wallace moment. You know, and I got to college. And, uh, you know, it's, it's embarrassing, I think, in some ways to, 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 to admit it now, because I think Wallace has like a complicated legacy, but sure. um, I'll cop to it. Like it was like I was obsessed and it really, I think, was really valuable for me as a, as a young reader and writer, like to, to immerse myself in those worlds. Infinite Jest and, and, and the story collections, too, were all super important to me and still are. Never meet your heroes, right? As far as talking about his complicated legacy and such. Oh, man. I, yeah, I did. I did. I did go to a reading of his when Brief Interviews yeah. with Hideous Men came out. Oh, wow. And there was uh, a moment where somebody in the audience was like, so like, you know, and he was just kind of like a, you know, like, I don't know how this dude had arrived at this reading, but was just like, so like, when you interview these guys, like the transcripts, like, did you like edit the transcripts at all? And like, Wallace's answer was like so ungenerous. I thought like he was just like <laughs> such a prick. You know, it was just like fiction from like Latin fictus, like ah, to dream. Like you could, you know, you could just it. say like, oh, sorry, you're mistaken. Like this is fiction. But he just had to like oh, give it in like the most beautifully florid, but like crushingly brutal, savage uh, response. And I remember at the moment that was like a meet your heroes thing where I was like, mm-hmm. you didn't have to crush this like random bro who was like just psyched to be at your reading but whatever oh my gosh i wonder if a transcript or video transcripts or something you know skirball center 90 whatever oh, yeah wow. look Skirball it up center. oh my gosh man i wonder about uh about audio being an audio producer i mean is that is that mean editing i'm sure it means much more than that i'm sure it means background noise and the whole deal but i wonder what <laughs> how how audio working in the audio space sorry i hate again using that term <laughs> But work in the I like to curate space. space. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, how many of those can we put together? But I wonder like how what that, does like, it mean to be an audio producer? Yeah. Yes, please. And also how the, how you feel like that affects your writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so for me, like I, I hosted and produced this this podcast, The Organist for KCRW, for for a number of years, and um, you know, it was it was it was modeled on on my time at the Believer, which is an arts and culture monthly published by McSweeney's, and 
where I was managing editor for a long time. And so in some ways it felt very similar to that, where I was like, okay, like, what do we want this episode? You know, that, that kind of editorial curatorial okay, right. move, right. Where it's like, what, what goes next to what, what's mm-hmm. in conversation with each other? Like, who are the people who we're interested in? What are the ideas we want to think about? Uh-huh. And then like, what's the best way to tell that story? Like this should be definitely be a Q and a, this is, I think more of like a, mm-hmm. you know, narrative featurey kind of piece. Um, and, you know, obviously you do have to think about medium. And so like a lot of the, the fun of it, I think a lot of it was those early years, the early episodes where we were really like, whoa, how do you, what is the difference between putting together a print magazine and putting together an audio magazine mm-hmm. and really learning on the job and having fun and like making mistakes and, and, and having experiments. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say like, you know, with radio as opposed to print, um, the premium is put on it's a much more documentary medium like it's there's more of like a you know it's time-based so there's like this this premium put on good tape which is like you know in print like if you have an interview and there's like a great line you know it's it's even if it's just like in your notebook and you're putting it between quotation marks and you put it in it's so dependent on like it just feels more manufactured to me in some ways like there's like the transcription to the to the writing of it you know what i mean but like in radio there's this sense that like you just like have this this like almost artifact that you find in the world and you can like put it on the air and it like speaks for itself almost. It really, it doesn't speak for itself. You have to like, Mm. you know, there's this whole art of writing to tape, Um, you know, and this is the kind of like narrative podcast that we're talking about, like less so with a Q and a where there's still good tape. Like it's still your job right now to like Mm. nudge me into like interesting situations where I like surprise myself and say things that I haven't said 30 times before on like the 30 other (laughs) podcasts I've done, you know, but like, but but I think like for the narrative version where you're like writing to tape, um, it was really exciting to be like, oh, we found this like really interesting moment in the field and how are we going to like contextualize it and present it? So I would say that's the kind of aspect of, of audio producing or radio producing that I really love. And and just the but like the part of actually being out there in the field with a tape recorder, you know, like waiting around for that moment, you know, or finding it. Hmm. Um and then in terms of how it affects the writing uh, of like of a print piece, like of like the book that I wrote, I don't know. <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know how it affected it. I mean, I think, I think, I think there's something about like the reader's attention and the listener's attention that's similar where like structure is really important in both situations where like, you know, the only way to hold someone's attention, I think is to kind of like, hold them in a structure a little bit mm-hmm. and like as soon as you like leave something too open they'll just wander out of it yeah. and not it's, yeah. it's almost feels like I'm, just, I'm describing a prison that you have to like imprison them but it is <laughs> it's it's not so much imprisoning them but just like giving them enough of a guide rails through it so that they don't wander away you know right and that i think is something that radio really puts a high premium on and that was something maybe i learned on the job there that i brought to my work that makes a lot of sense. I'm kind of just thinking about it now for the first time. But so I read it on a Kindle. You know, I read an ebook, and I just felt like there were times I just felt like that you were like guiding us along in, in the best possible way. And I'm just like, oh, mm. yeah, I bet, I bet the next you know swipe through or whatever you call it, like is going to be the end of the chapter. And, a lot and of it times, was a lot of times I was right. You know what I mean? Mm. It just I, I really felt that. And then you, the way that you were able to almost like in a movie way, you know how a movie can just go through time so easily because mm. just a different scene. But like, I felt like you did that very smoothly where, you know, there wasn't like a million flashbacks in the book, but it wasn't, wasn't necessarily a straight linear 
you know, on October 5th. So I thought that just the, the built-in structure, even just of chapters and parts worked really well in this book. So yeah, I wonder how much of that is from your audio and how much of that I mean, you were just born with, you know? I mean, I got to say a lot of that was from Emily Cunningham, uh, okay. uh, employee of Penguin Random House. I mean, uh -huh. she, my editor, my editor was amazing in that front. I mean, you know, I'll give myself credit for writing the book, but like the thing that you just described, Mm -hmm. she was on me about like from the day one to the yeah. end um and really just like to like down to little things i mean that are actually really big things like sure. you know my first draft she was like you know every chapter you're starting out with a kind of like a personal anecdote and then leading into a kind of historical moment mm -hmm. and like that works some of the time but like if you do that every time, the reader is just like, okay. this is a formula on board. Right, right, so like, right. what if you started this chapter somewhere where we're like, why the hell are we here? And then it pays off when they're like, oh, that's where we are. Yeah. Um, you know, and so things like that, I think I never would have found on my own. I'm so grateful that she kind of pushed me in those directions. Oh, that's really cool to hear. Again, the book is called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. And I'm probably oversimplifying in your acknowledgments. You talk about, I, I'd love to know about some of the seeds. You talked about like the Venetus, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. The Venetus project from 2016 that kind of maybe. Oh, Triple Canopy. Like, yes. As that part, I'm sure that was just part of it, but I'd love to know about some of the seeds. What what made you think um, there was a book there and, and made you continue? That's interesting. Yeah. So like around that time, what did, did you just say a year that that happened that I said in it, the acknowledgments? It was 2016. 16. Okay. Yeah. 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 So like that, that was a moment, I think, when that's interesting. Um, yeah. So like 2016, I was making The Organist, I think. Yeah, of course. Uh, I was making The Organist podcast and I was, uh, what else was I doing? I was probably teaching. Um, and, and I was, I had just moved to Massachusetts and yeah, I'd moved to Massachusetts earlier that year. And, um, and one thing that happened that year was that I decided like, okay, I carry around this white cane folded up in my bag mm -hmm. all the time. And I almost never bring it out because I'm super ashamed of it. And it's like super embarrassing whenever I use it in public. But like, this is an opportunity. I'm not going to know anybody in Northampton, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Why don't I just, just like be a cane user when I get to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And, um, and like overnight blindness sort of like, burst into my life you know it's not like my vision suddenly changed you know my vision it changes my vision changes like over the course of two years you know like mm -hmm. there's a dramatic not dramatic like what we would but what you would you and i would experience is like a dramatic change in vision for me is like on the two-year plan okay um but like overnight it felt like a dramatic change because of the social experience of being in public with a white cane right. and that just like turbocharged all of my thinking about it that was like but before that like you know, it was in my mind. I was like, I should write about this, but there was no real like strong motivation or like really sense of like how I would do that. And suddenly it was like, I have to do it. Mm. And so I don't know how much you want to get into like the minutiae of it, but like, yeah, th there was this really still is this really awesome online magazine called triple canopy that had a call for proposals. And, um, and I submitted a sort of proposal for like a experimental podcast about blindness to them. Mm. And they, you know, they accepted it. And I like talked to their editors and I started to develop it. 
And that was like the beginning of this outline that ended up being the sort of first outline for the book too, okay. where I was like, okay, there's all these sort of like buckets of thoughts that I have of like, mm-hmm. when I sort of think about the world of blindness, you know, what ended up being like the country of the blind, it's like, there's sort of like the relationship with visual culture mm-hmm. and there's like the relationship with technology and there's the sort of identity politics stuff, you know, and all the things that ended up being the chapters of the book, I started to formulate with that. And then, you know, for pretty boring reasons like that didn't work out and then that kind of morphed into a different podcast project that also imploded Hmm. and then along the way i ended up finding an agent a literary agent who at first i just reached out to because i was like this podcast deal is imploding what do i do like Hmm. does anybody at your agency do podcasts and she was like yeah but p.s like this sort of sounds like it would be an awesome book if you Hmm. wanted to do that instead of a podcast and then I was like, that's a much better idea. So then we just kind of did that instead. Okay. There's so much in the book about, about contradictions. Mm. Um, even the introduction is called the end begins. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really interesting that you were, and I, I could, un- I could totally understand what you were saying. You were talking about having like a Google search for retinitis pigmentosa. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, which is the condition, the R- or RP. Yep. That you were diagnosed with, you know, more than twenty years ago. But you're saying that like whenever you get those Google searches, you pretty much just erased them. But they had like, yeah. you know, like what's the word, like saccharine sweet, like um, you know, headlines that were just like, oh come on, they yeah, so, like puns and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But this this is not that. This is, you know, the idea of these contradictions are I always get oxymoron and the other one mixed up, but uh what's the other you know what two things can't necessarily be the same. But anyway Oh paradox. Paradox, thank you. Right. Your yeah. be, your beginning is I'm going blind as I write this. It feels less dramatic than it sounds. The words aren't disappearing as I type. I'm sitting comfortably in the sunroom. Uh Set, I can plainly see Lily sitting next to me reading in her striped pajamas, Lily being your wife. A little bit further on, there's no cure for retinitis pigmentosa, the condition I was diagnosed with more than 20 years ago. But just the idea of, there it is, I skipped the line. It feels at once catastrophic and commonplace. And you you write about that so interestingly throughout the book. You come to some some conclusions, if you will, although I know it's you know, a, a work in progress towards the end mm-hmm. of the book, too, that deal with that. Um, but I thought it was such an interesting way to just really get into it and let us know about this idea of, and later on in the book, you talk about going blind versus becoming, like becoming blind. blind. I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that difference in like the mindset that it, that it implies. Yeah. That's something that came from my conversations with a guy named Will Butler, who's also a writer. Um, these days he works for Apple um, on their, in their accessibility uh, department and uh, division, whatever. And um, he's, he's you know, I think he's younger than I am, but he's definitely a mentor because uh, he's just been, he's been blind for longer than I have. And he also has just thought about it a lot more deeply than I have. And um, and and that's something that that he told me, you know, it's like, I, I think of blindness much more as an arrival than a departure, you know, and he thinks of himself as becoming blind rather than going blind because going blind has all these negative connotations to Mm -hmm. it. Right. And, um, and that's a really powerful idea that I really, 
when I encountered ideas like that in the book, you know, this just general idea of like gaining something from an experience of loss, mm. I wanted to be super careful about not just, you know, because it sounds good and like publishers like it, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like inspirational. And I just, I just, I just tried to hold myself to a pretty high standard and like only let myself express that if I also included like all the ambivalence I felt around it and like it had to be earned. And in the end, I feel like I I believe it, you know, like I don't believe it to the point where I'm like, everyone should try going blind sometime. Right. Like, it's Uh, like, it's a marvelous thing. But like the reality is I think if, if it's happening to you, it doesn't have to be like pure tragedy. Like there's gonna, Mm -hmm. by the same token, like I think anybody who grows up with vision and loses it, there has to be an aspect of grief to that. And there you do have to get through it. And it's not like it's fun. But I also think that there are, for, for anyone, I would say, I'll make the bold claim that like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's possible to experience it as a simultaneous like reduction of your world, but also like mm-hmm. it does open you up to new experiences, new people, new feelings, and new ways of thinking that for me have been really valuable and I'm still on the path, you know, like I still have vision and I'm still losing it. So, you know, I can't speak definitively, but I do, I do think that that is a real thing and not just like a saccharine Pollyanna, like let's call it becoming blind and not just going blind. Hmm. The title coming from that you, you write about your go to search in search of the world of the blind that awaits you. Like you said, who knows how long that's going to be, who knows how complete that's going to be. Refresh my memory. Sorry, Nunez is from a book or a movie. He was the one who said, "Yeah, it's an H.G. Wells." Right. So yeah, my, the title of my book is is borrowed from H.G. Wells, the sci-fi writer, uh, early twentieth century sci-fi writer, uh, who has a story called "The Country of the Blind." That's about um, a mountaineer named Nunez. It's weird. Like I know that in Spanish it's supposed to be Nunez, but, but like <laughs> oh, being like a British dude, uh, I think it was Wells uh, British. I should know that. Yeah, uh, you know, like whatever just like yeah, let's call him Nunez um yeah Wells is British um anyway he gets separated from his expedition party in a landslide in the Andes mountains and and, and finds himself in this lost valley that is the 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 proverbial country of the blind where this this blind civilization has lived sort of separate from any sighted people for for generations hmm. and their language has no word for sea and he arrives this sort of like you know almost like a colonialist like right. ah well of course like i'll dominate them but then it's this story of sort of how when he's the minority he's actually actually like he's the disabled one in their world and everything is built for the blind and the, hmm. to sort of to be cited is actually a liability and um and so that 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 idea really resonated with me as sort of I felt like this sort of interloper, this sort of like uh, new arrival in this country. And so th- that's why I borrowed the title. Yeah. Well, you make the interesting point about there really is seemingly, and definitely me being an outsider, but definitely seems like there's a, a stronger history, a stronger community of of deaf, of uh, in the deaf community versus the blind community, right? For sure. Um, but you also mentioned, of course, there's including yourself, there's a huge spectrum of blindness Mm. there are people who were born completely blind there are people who are going or becoming blind there are Mm -hmm. people who have rp like you like you mentioned and so that's maybe seemingly obvious but but you just the way you describe it is like okay he definitely needed to include that and that adds so much to the reader's experience 
Well, it's actually not obvious, amazingly, mm-hmm. because because I think I think in particular, if you think about the word blind, like you know, if I say to you, or you know, just like to a person on the street, like so, picture this blind guy, right? Like the person you picture has zero light perception, I would imagine, right? And they're wearing dark right. glasses, mm-hmm. and they have a a long white cane or a dog, and you know, they probably are miserable in some fundamental way, right? right? Like if they're not selling pencils, they're probably like about to walk in front of a bus and they're certainly like don't have a family and a job and a, you know, passion for ice hockey. Um, sure. But the reality that I found is that like, number one, you know, f- fewer than 10, some estimates say 15% of blind people have no light perception. So like the vast, vast majority do see something the unemployment thing is real, but it's like not for want oh of gosh, trying. Those, it's those like numbers were, oh my gosh, just yeah, frightening, unacceptable. Yeah, unacceptable. Um, and you know, and then just like the normalcy of it, I think people lose. They they just people can't hold on to the like fact that a blind person might like be into you know Japanese horror movies or ice mm-hmm. hockey or you know exotic pizza like it's just like you probably are into like blindness and feeling sad and maybe like animals you know it's like an infantilization right sure. like you like kid stuff what would uh what would exotic pizza be hmm. exotic pizza i'm trying to think of what that would be i don't know i just rip, either be rift, older, I rift that one off the dome that's, like that's yeah whatever stuff. like some stuff yeah pepitas crumbled into wasabi glaze i don't know wow i'm gonna try that later tonight that sounds disgusting but yeah it kind of does actually uh, talking about that it is not obvious and you obviously make that great point i i definitely oversimplified it you're possibly kind of like if there's if there's one thesis of the book it's quote my hope is that this book will encourage the sighted reader to likewise discover the largely invisible terrain of blindness as well as other ways of living and thinking they might not have previously considered yeah how many of us how many people have not considered these like you know this this spectrum that you that you write about so well instead of just like you said that one archetypal blind man who's in danger of getting hit by a bus obviously there are many ways and degrees of being blind you, you like you said uh, only about 15% have no perception at all how about the how about the the ways that you that you've seen especially in, in writing this book but just the metaphors of blindness and you write about mm. you know i don't know how to pronounce his name Bruegel the painter oh Bruegel Bruegel yeah Right. I still have nightmares from reading Oedipus when I was in high school. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, right. Um, but just this idea he's suffering for his sins and he's blind or just the ways that blindness is, is used as a as a, as a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I would give a shout out to my friend Leona Godin, who wrote a really great book a couple of years ago called Their Plant Eyes, a okay. personal and cultural history of blindness. And she she goes into really uh, wonderful detail about a lot of those tropes. But you know, I would say they they do boil down to a few few big categories, and one of them, yeah, like you you mentioned, you I think you meant you covered a bunch of them. Like, there's this sort of, um, I mean, there's this sort of like psychic seer, you know, like so from like ancient Greek, you know, from Oedipus. It's not just Oedipus, but um, there's Tiresias, who's like the oh, yeah. the blind seer who's sort of punished by the gods, but then to compensate for his punishment, they give him the second sight. And there's this sort of like mystical, you know, which which seems positive, but actually it's like another kind of exoticization. You know, it's like right. anything that like pushes the blind person away from like just being not a walking metaphor, but just like a person who uh-huh. likes weird pizza. Uh, you know, I feel like it's a problem. So like, you know, the seer and you see it in like 
everything from what's that what's that um that morgan freeman movie uh book of eli i've never seen it but apparently there's like weird i haven't seen either psychic blindness things going on there like this the like the blind psychic the blind the magical blind person it's like a trope yeah 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 and then yeah like oedipus i would say like yeah like the divine punishment or the sort of like afflicted Mm. you know like like there but for the grace of god go i the sort of like suffering blind person uh, sort of like yeah or yeah like in the with all the freudian connotations that oedipus Mm -hmm. brings along the beggar the blind you know pencil seller on the street like you said bringing in the freudian thing it's just like uh, that i'm not gonna i don't think i'm gonna read oedipus anytime soon again you know yeah there's there's a it's a lot as they would say yeah i mean you know the other one i didn't mention is like daredevil right the comic book character where it's like which is like a version i think of a little bit of like the tiresias figure in that it's just like blindness is you know there's like compensatory superpowers you're right as the book goes on you write about a time when you were in missouri and there was like kind of like a meetup um i don't Mm. remember the exact group but you talked about it just being kind of awkward i would think and then, and then a little bit later on about the cane as being emblematic. And so, you know, it's, I can see that as part of like the journey, which obviously is stops and starts and back, back and forth, like everyone in life. Right. But yeah. I wonder um, maybe what was, what was tough about that, about that meeting, about that meetup. Yeah. So I, you know, I was diagnosed when I was 19 and for many years, you know, for like at least 10 or 12 years after that, it was like pretty much not. A part of my life like you know there i had to figure things out on my own like i would sort of i stopped driving at night stopped driving during the day mm. but then by the time we were living in missouri um you know i wasn't i wasn't using a white cane, but i was definitely like noticing it mm-hmm. and it was like i couldn't really i was still in denial but i was like but the denial was starting to crumble a little bit and i was like okay mm-hmm. i guess this is real and i guess i have to deal with this somehow and mm-hmm. And also we had just moved from San Francisco. And so like transportation was a lot tougher there. And I was feeling more isolated, I think. I didn't know anybody. And so I think that just all that kind of combined to make me be like, let me find some blind people. Maybe I can like get support somehow or community. And so I just sort of randomly, you know, I think I just, I didn't like know where to turn. And so I just found this group and it turned out to be the NFB, National Federation of the Blind, Uh their local chapter uh mid-missouri chapter and um you know i went and lily drove me because it was like you know would have taken me like you know i would have had to either take a cab or walk for 90 minutes or something Mm -hmm. um you know we showed up late and like nobody we didn't really announce our presence none of the sighted people there like you know stopped the meeting to announce us so it was just sort of Mm -hmm. this like awkwardly standing there and we both felt really awkward and um you know, I took a risk in writing that scene in the book the way I did because I really was pretty brutally honest about how alienated I felt and how judgmental I was, like the sort of like super ableist gaze that I had where we were okay. just like, who are these people? You know, like mm. like they just, I felt like I had nothing in common with them. You know, part of that was like, there was some like culture shock of like coming from the Bay Area and suddenly mm-hmm. being like in mid-Missouri and just like the vibes were different. But mm-hmm. certainly like the majority of it was like, these are not, you know, we're just not used to hanging out with disabled people. Yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, I'm not proud of the response I had, but it felt important to include in the book, I think, because, you know, one thing that's been interesting since the book came out is that like blind people who are like 
very politically active who are like mm. deep in community read that passage read that scene and they're like same like first time i tried to go to like a blind meetup mm. i was like get me the hell out of here like who are these people mm. like these are not my people and and it was really like yeah it was it made me feel better <laughs> that that like mm. it wasn't just like i was an elitist asshole but that like you know when you're joining a community like that especially sort of against your will and like mm. one that's very fraught and bound up with a lot of conflicted feelings and stigma and like internalized ableism and on and on and on sure. like that's an aspect of the experience and you know and it was an aspect of it for lily too and sort of i think i had to acknowledge that like she had to work through that stuff the same way i did and we had mm. to sort of go through it together so yeah that was that was what that scene was about and you know i liked it felt justified in some ways including in the book too because nfb didn't mean anything to me at the time but like by the time I got to the end of the book. And then by the time the reader gets to the end of the book, the NFB is like a much clearer entity, you know, and it's got like this really rich history and it's got like, it like means a lot of things to a lot of people. And there's like, it's really active and juicy and weird and wild. Mm. Uh, and so it's kind of like, that was just like my first, like, you know, yeah. awkward encounter with them, but there's, I give them lots of other opportunities to, Definitely. You know, in retrospect, like there were people who I know were actually at that meeting where I'm like, oh, like the editor of the Braille Monitor, the NFB's flagship newspaper was at that meeting. Like if I talked to Gary, like that guy would have had tons of great advice for me. But like, you know, I didn't I didn't give him a chance. And mm -hmm. I think I make that clear. Like it's not like yeah. I'm like, these people are are jerks. I'm just like I didn't I didn't bother talking to them. Right. You mentioned the NFB, and you really write very interestingly about the the contradiction. Not just NFB; I'm sure it's internalized and it's within different communities too. But just the idea of like that contradiction of folks: we are cl clearly special needs, but we also want to be treated with dignity. We don't want to be infantilized, like you talk about. Just that 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 ongoing balance, right? And yeah. you really, um, you know, dove in like uh, what's his name, Hunter Thompson style, right? Like the National Blind Convention. <laughs> Right. And yeah, uh, yeah. later on, you go to, sorry, remind me of the place in Littleton, Colorado. Oh, yeah. The Colorado Center for the Blind. Right. So it was like, you know, it was somewhere you were, it wasn't, you weren't just there for an hour. You were there um, as part of the convention, as part of the, the place yeah, yeah. in Colorado, everything like that. Um, but there was some really, uh, the gentleman you mentioned earlier, sorry, the one who works for Apple now. Will Butler. Right. I, I think maybe you had some conversations with him there at the National Blind Convention. And just mm -hmm. there were times when you were you, you were in tears, I think. Right. It was just the, to see the the care that people have for each other and the way that, you know, a joke that may not be you may not make with a sighted person. You're like, oh, man, you know, sorry, I wandered into the wrong room again. And, you know, just that back and forth. But I wonder what the, the National Blind Convention, is, especially I wonder how that changed. And again, it's not a whole 180, but just how that kind of changed your mindset a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if like that, that picnic that we were talking about, the sort of like Missouri local picnic mm. was this sort of like, you know, I could stand at the at the periphery of it and kind of like cast judgment. You know, the NFB National Convention, which is in a giant um, convention center that, you know, it's different. They, they move around the country. The year I went, uh -huh. it was in Florida, Florida, in Orlando, like there's no spectators, right? Like you're, it's an immersion uh, because it's 3000 blind people, you know? And so like, you're just like sort of literally in like a crush of canes and dogs mm -hmm. and like a flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's people who are 
they call them talking signs because, okay, you know, like at a normal convention, there'd just be a little sign on the wall that's like, uh, you know, uh, amateur radio meetup four o'clock here. Mm. Obviously, that doesn't work for blind people, you know, and, and even, you know, not everybody's a braille reader. And also, it wouldn't make sense for like 60 people to like run their hands across this tiny little, uh-huh. you know, makeshift sign, right? So you have just a person standing outside going, you know, amateur radio meetup four o'clock, mm. amateur radio meetup four o'clock. So it's just this like, sonic sensory overload um and yeah and and, you know the one thing that a number of people said to me is like the only thing they all have in common is blindness so you've got like hardcore trumpers and like ivy league Mm. professors and Mm. um people with multiple disabilities you know like Mm. kids elders deafblind people like it's just like a whole mess of people and uh and it was totally overwhelming but totally incredible. And, um, and really it, it, it took like 30 seconds for me to feel that. Like I walked in and I had never seen, you know, I, you know, I've been to that picnic. So I like saw a handful of blind people like sitting in a picnic bench, but like mm-hmm. suddenly to be like, Oh, there's more blind people in this room than sighted people. Right, and like, this right. is the first time I've seen more than like a handful of blind people at once. Yeah. And also like, I, I belong here. Like that was, the, that was the, it wasn't like mm-hmm. an intellectual thought. It was just like this feeling like, Mm. okay like i'm not my cane isn't weird anymore i'm not weird like this is um that, like it was a first person plural mm-hmm. move that suddenly happened uh that was yeah it was overwhelming and it was incredibly uh it was really beautiful i you know and for all the the um the problems and and sort of controversies that surround the nfb you know i'm so grateful for a lot so much of what they've done and but that just mm-hmm. that that convention the experience of going there Mm-hmm. I would recommend it to anyone who mm. who's losing their vision, who's lost their vision, uh, whatever your politics are, whatever you think about the organization. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's a really powerful experience. I, I got yeah, just the idea that you you obviously knew knew all those things intellectually, but um, as we as the reader follow along as you really experience them, I was going to say <laughs> pa- I was going to say pathological, but pathos, you know, in an emotional mm. way, right? Yeah. Wonder, wonder if you could talk a little bit about like the like genetic testing and. Ashkenazi uh, Jews, I believe, have more of the of the gene, right? Yeah. So there's like there's like hundreds of mutations that uh-huh. can cause RP, but of the mutation that I have, which is called the MAC one mutation, right? Uh, yeah, Ashkenazi Jews are the the majority because of, I guess the uh, you know the diasporic intermarrying, the small gene pool. It's uh, okay. you know, it's one of those common yeah. diseases, right? So, so you're talking about not, I mean, I mean, maybe this has changed or, but you talked about not having your wife do the genetic testing. And again, we as a reader are like, we, we get it both ways. We understand if you did want to we understand if you don't, I guess, I guess, am I saying correctly? The main reason would just be like, if we found out she does have some of the markers, like then what? Like, I wonder about the idea to, to do the genetic testing or not. Yeah. I'm a little careful because I feel like the walls have ears in this particular interview situation. Say whatever you like um, to say or, or don't say it. Yeah. No yeah. Problem. I mean, normally <laughs> I would be freer, but um, I guess like the, the way that I would say it, if there was a little person with their ear pressed to the door uh, is yeah. Like, like it wouldn't, if we got that information, how would we act differently? Like what, 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 what value would it, how yeah. what would it change? What, you know, what, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. and um. And the reality is like, I don't think it would. And so as a result, like, I don't want to know. It's a deranged comparison, but like, I don't look at book sales. 
because I'm like, <laughs> what's it going to do, right? Like, sure. if the book is doing great, yeah, cool. Like, if the book is doing terribly, I'm already like doing everything I can to like get the uh-huh. book out there. So like, it doesn't change anything. It's the same thing. Like, it, if it's just information that's going to mess with your head, like, what's the point of giving it to yourself? Does that include Goodreads? Oh, stay away from Goodreads. I've just yeah. heard too many stories of like, yes. and that was the last time we ever saw that novelist was when she clicked on her own Goodreads <laughs> page and she just disappeared into right? the woods. Oh my God. Um, really interesting points about how people of color experience blindness. And reading this book, you just like, oh my God, there are so many expressions, you know, color blindness. Mm. Obviously, we know what it, we know what it means. We think about it, but it's just like, oh my God, you know. And we talked earlier about these these metaphors and such, but mm-hmm. um, but just also, you know, about how women experience blindness, about the way that yeah, he is a black man, but you know, why would he not experience? But he's also you know intersectionality, right? And how mm. so many queer women of color or women of color who are in the disabled community have been at the forefront, right, of so many political movements and laws and all that. I'd forgotten that, I, I guess, Bill Cosby, like, pleaded, maybe it's not the right term, but I mean, I guess he legitimately has blindness, right? But just the idea that he felt like he should some more sympathy, and that's obviously so much to untangle there, right? Yeah, there's a lot there. I think it comes back to that idea that I was, that we were talking about before, where like, you know, if I, if, if, if I ask you to picture a blind person, mm-hmm. you know, like, probably it's like a white guy too, right? Like a straight mm-hmm. white guy, like, you know, not necessarily, but I think like traditionally, like if you say like, draw a picture of a disabled person, right? It's like a, like, especially like the eighties version, you know, like when I, I grew up in the eighties, like there's like a blonde guy who's like mm. super buff in a wheelchair, you know, and like uh-huh. that's a disabled person. And I feel like with blindness, there's, there's a similar kind of like straight middle-class white guy. Mm. And um, so, yeah, like in my research and in my reporting, I encountered the disability justice movement in particular was really mind-blowing to me, um, which is rigorously intersectional. You know, it, it came out of the Bay Area in the 2000s with pr- primarily uh, queer women of color um, and also like a lot of disabilities that were not traditionally part of the like main disability platform, you know, mm. which I feel like does tend to privilege like physical disabilities. Okay. So a lot of like people who identify as mad or um, chronically ill, uh, you know, sometimes like, you know, like things that people tend to write off. There's a really wonderful writer named Leah Lakshmi Peepsna Samara Sinha, who's like a really important voice in the disability mm. justice movement. And, and they write about, yeah, like chemical sensitivities, which they always think about as like a coddled white person thing, you know, like, oh, like I can't use the soap because I'm like vegan. And but then their their point is like a lot of people have chemical sensitivities because they're like working as domestic workers and like maybe the chemicals they use have like in like environmental racism, right? And you know, yeah, like exactly. Ports exactly. And, uh-huh, factories and oh wow. Exactly. So so like that sort of idea really started butting heads in some ways with like the the sort of more traditional disability rights stuff that I had been reading, you know, which is like the the NFB again, or like, you know, like the sort of first wave disability rights, which is like modeled on the black civil rights movement, which is also like very, you know, I think where intersectionality kind of came out to address a lot of, a lot of those movements too, which is to say that like, you know, I think if you look at the black civil rights movement and intersectional critique of it, it's like, it's not just like the straight, uh, black man right like who's like the mm. the subject of it like where is the role of, of women in this movement or queer people 
um, and disabled people. And so, yeah, like I started to find a lot of conflict and and just like a lot more complexity in this sort of like very simplistic notion that I brought to it that I and that I could sort of assume that the mm. average reader of my book would also share. And mm. so it felt important to me. And also I was just writing it like during the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd's mm. murder. And um, it was just everywhere. Like there was this sort of reckoning, you know, and also like a lot of me too stuff, like you brought up Bill Cosby, like that was all mm. kind of in the mix. So like these, like the blindness community and the disability activist community mm. themselves were all like wrestling with this stuff while I was wrestling with it, trying to write the book. So like sure. it all, like whether I liked it or not, it all kind of like entered into my yeah. argument. Yeah, being up in Sacramento like I am, and but you know having family connections and stuff, and school and to the Bay Area was definitely heartened to read. I mean, I know so much about the activism of the Bay Area and its great history, but man, I you know so many cool stories and interesting stories about like what's the was it curb edge or what was the term for curb cuts, curb cuts, right? And just like oh my gosh, and so much of the the history and um, just the some of the personalities in Berkeley and Oakland, I'm like yeah, man, just involved in every sort of fight for justice. So really cool to to see that my editor made a funny comment where she was just like so you've got like lily your wife like went to school at berkeley and like will butler was at berkeley uh, and then there's like the disability rights movement was born in berkeley and then you've got this like blind technologist in berkeley and she's like what's going on with berkeley like why is your book mm. like have this like weird berkeley thing and um you know i think there is like an answer to that i mean there's like a complicated answer but now i have to give you the answer uh, what is the answer <laughs> i mean you know, I think part of it is like you have the the sort of counterculture, you know, like Berkeley and, yeah. and the Bay Area as like the the heart of that. But 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 like the blindness history there goes back, you know, to the 19th century. Like the mm. the California School for the Blind is one of these early uh, blind schools that is really the cradle of the organized blind movement, where like the beginning of blind people, and this is the NFB, like the beginning of the NFB, right. saying, you know we have these workers for the blind, these like sighted people who are like charitable and they're going to like, they know what's best for us, but guess what? Like they don't know what's best for us. Mm. People who know what's best for blind people are blind people. And so, you know, up until that point, that's like the, you know, the foundation for the blind and the charitable organization for the blind, mm. like, no, we're the national federation of the blind. Mm. And they have these rules. Like, you know, you have to, it has to be a majority blind on the board. And that's all happening in California in like turn of the century, like, 1800s sure so you know you have the sort of like seeds of it going way back but like you know all that generation of those sort of badass sort of self-determined blind you know the first among the first generation of blind people to go to college i think a disproportionate number of them are going to uc berkeley mm -hmm. and so like i think that's a history that is actually like understudied yeah. is that like people sort of think like the independent living movement you know bursts onto the scene, like out of the counterculture in the sixties. But I think there's like seeds of it that are much, much older, like running through California history. Right. So was this Berkeley or Berserkly? <laughs> right. Often known as Berserkly. You know, there's a transition yeah. as Berkeley moves into the Berserkly phase. <laughs> Obviously the Bay Area is, is often associated with tech and a lot of what you're talking about, you're, you know, Will works for Apple and yeah. obviously a lot about it is, you know, adaptability and, and actual technology, but it's not, it's not all. But you do write about medical advances as well, obviously in the in the biotech area, stem cells and gene therapy, mm -hmm. and uh, you know what your doctors have told you. You being kind of like, I guess lukewarm would probably be the way to describe it. I right? not just you. <laughs> thank you for <laughs> right. Thank you for identifying that. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> 
because because <clears throat> there's you know there's you know some of them are very tech heavy man that one that um the one you described that has like wings like a like a yes. like a contact with wings like oh man that sounded painful oh yeah that's horrible yeah right and just, i was at the i was at that i was at the eye doctor the other day and there was a, a woman who was having her first ever i think she was like just diagnosed and i was sort of chatting with her and she was like yeah i just did the that's called the the ir what is it called the erg Oof. and i it was like it was i felt like we were just like having deep solidarity about it yeah oh man i mean very interesting you talk about one of the doctors who i'm sure has great things at heart but was just kind of almost trying to make like a cyborg uh-huh, uh-huh. right and just this idea of like how much is too much tech is this really the person anymore one of them you're you're seeing light, but it's not, it's not a, it's an, it's an artificial light. It's all these back and forth. And I, am I correct? In, am I putting words in your mouth that if you had to lean towards one or the other, it'd be, it would be the gene therapy over the stem cell? Or is that more of your doctor saying that? That was what my doctor said. Yeah. Yeah. My take on it is like, I've talked since the book has come out, you know, like my inbox is full of, of blind people, but also like particularly like people who are sort of in my situation, you know, yeah. who are just like, Hey man, like I'm doing this clinical trial. And like, when I hear about the experience of people in clinical trials, like, you know, I think one of the hardest things about having RP is the like, not knowing, you know, like if you RP in this stage where you're like, okay, I still have some vision that I'm using, mm-hmm. but it's going away, but I don't know how fast it's going away. And like, maybe it'll be around for 20 years, or maybe some part of it will be around for 20 years, or maybe it'll be around for one year, you know, and like, mm-hmm. that's just like really messes with your head. And I think that when you're in a clinical trial and there's just this like giant literal microscope being put mm-hmm. on your experience, mm-hmm. like which which you're already sort of helpless to micro analyze anyway, it messes with your head too much. I just don't want that in my life, you know? Yeah. And so for me, it's like, if my doctor says to me like, great news, like put in these eye drops for the next week and then you're good. Or like, you're going to get this surgery and then hooray. Um, Yes, I will do that. But like until then, I'm not. I'm continuing to delete the Google alerts. Uh-huh. I'm not. I'm not like going to clinicaltrials.gov. I. Uh, I'm glad it's happening, but I spend my time, you know, learning how to use my screen reader better, trying to keep my my blindness skills up so that I can, you know, like practicing Braille, trying to trying to learn how to be happy and effective and productive as a blind person and not pin hopes on vision. about braille was so interesting and i i hadn't known i say i'm a huge fan of boarheads so i have a few that i know and i'm just like a fanatic about I, I can't say that i know like his whole catalog but mcfall is the last name he was maybe like a reader at the library he was a, a ben mcfall was a, a bookseller at the strand bookseller. in new york right 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 and just like how you you felt so emotionally taken uh emotionally emotionally spent or emotionally uh affected you know i guess some of it, he had like a like a badge or something like that that said ask me yeah, he was a bookseller at the at the Strand who was like legendary, and people would just like come to the bookstore and like a line would form behind his desk, and people would just want to like talk books with him, you know, and be like, "What are you yeah, reading? What's going man. on? Like, what's good?" You know, he'd be like, "Oh, we just got like David Markson's books, and you know, like go check out the Kierkegaard section because there's Markson's Kierkegaard or whatever, you know, that kind of thing." And then when the pandemic um, started, he. I think he was, I don't know if he was immunocompromised, but he, 
he was not no longer, I guess the store was closed and he was mm-hmm. like working from the corporate office or whatever. I don't know the full story, yeah. but basically like, yeah, like this, the badge that he wore at the store that said, ask me, like he wore it basically till the very end. And there was an obituary of his that I was reading. Yeah. And, and I use that story in part because like I'm starting that's that that is telling the story of my starting to use a screen reader, which is just a piece of software that uh-huh. reads the text on the, on your phone or on your computer aloud. And so I was reading the New York Times with a screen reader, which is to say like a robot was like right. reading it to me very quickly. Uh, and I was reading, happened to be reading his obituary and at like a super fast speech. And if you heard it, it just sounds mm-hmm. like like a psycho digital chipmunk being like, you know, like it's just, it's, but you can, your ear gets trained to hear it. Yes. And, and I just, yeah, like I suddenly was like crying at this beautifully written obituary and I was like, Oh, okay. Like it's still, it's working. Like if I can be moved by an obituary and like get it, like, I guess I'm reading still. And then just the fact that like the image that I was reading was of this guy whose commitment, not just to like the solitary act of reading, but the, like the really social, community part of it which is so important to me too like it just was a it was a way for me to end that chapter with this idea that like i'm still a reader you know like i may have to be like radically renovating my modality you know like how i engage with text but like i'm still a part of that group book is so great because you make you have such like a fresh look on things that people have heard and know but just ideas of like dependence and acts of love one of the what kind of like one of the classic that we know where you look at the poster that has the letters and maybe put one hand over it like you might do at the DMV mm-hmm. or something like that. And just how loving your your son and your wife have been and just about how your wife going to that first appointment was amazing for her. Something just about such an intimate act. This is not related to any of the questions I'm going to ask, but just such an interesting line. We were talking about like, obviously there's racism within communities, even disabled communities. But the guy, one of the guy, uh, gentlemen said, I hear ignorance vividly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So such a such that line really stands out. If I were doing an audio, you know, if I were audio producing, you know, <laughs> that one that one stands out. But yeah, know, well, because that that was like around the the, the George Floyd protests, uh-huh. and there was all these blind people on these NFB Zoom calls at the time, yeah, and they were like, right. "Look, I'm blind. Like, I literally don't see color. Like, like white, like tended to be white blind people, mm-hmm. and they're like, you know, basically like the, the taking that idea of of racial color blindness literally like mm-hmm. i don't i don't see and then all of these black blind people had to be like you know that's that 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 line is a black blind person being like i may not see color either but like i can hear ignorance you know mm-hmm. like it's you don't need to be able to see the color of someone's skin to have internalized or to be able to right. uh, have those those to participate in racism Towards the end, you know, you we talked about you go to the the training center, uh, the center for the blind in Littleton, Colorado, and you you really kind of uh, juxtapose it with Father Carroll. I want to say Father, yeah. like the, the Carroll Center, and yeah, yeah, seems to have uh, you know had a different view to to put it lightly uh, on dealing with blindness, but just like you say, you read the book and it was just bleak, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, because somebody had recommended it to me, a blind person had, yeah. and um, you know, I kind of maybe should have seen it coming because mm-hmm. she tends to have a pretty like let's say direct if not bleak view of blindness okay but yeah like i picked it up and i was like cool this is going to be like a useful you know primer on like blindness skills and like the first line is blindness is a dying uh you know and it's like and like there's even like a kind of almost like like 1950s era trigger warning in the book where he's like this book is super rough you guys but like you know (laughs) know, it it literally is tough it out right describe it yeah um and uh, 
yeah, and I, I couldn't believe it. And then, and then I found all this stuff from the time of like people from the NFB being like, actually, it's not a dying. Like, mm-hmm. look at me, I'm still alive. You know, and that you don't have to, uh, you know. And I've had and I and, and drafts of the book that I shared with friends and some blind friends. You know, I got a version of that comment where they were sort of like, "Cool it with the dying language, yeah. bro," because like it's it's tough because, you know, like I said before, the the idea of grief is really important if you're losing vision you know there's some blind people who are like vision loss is a epithet that pisses me off because i never lost vision like i never had vision and that's that's fair but you know for a lot of us like it is something that you're losing and i do think it's something to grieve but by the same token uh it's possible to play too much into that trope and like then you really then you really juice this idea of it as a tragedy so yeah the, the carol book is like the like you know, Necronomicon of that attitude, I would say. It's like yeah. the like, it's like evil. I mean, it's, I don't want to say the dude is evil. He's a nice, uh, you know, the Carroll Center has helped some people, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a, a philosophy that I find very helpful. Yeah. Just like RP for you is a, is a process, a journey, a lot of stops and starts, times when you feel more comfortable than others. The, you talk about like with this idea of 2020, 20, up until now, it's like, okay, there are, we talked about there are, there have been abuse within these organizations. And now certain groups that would say, oh, we're, we're kind of like plowing through and we're not necessarily looking to, to emphasize vulnerability and therapy. It's like, okay, maybe we need to, you know, to balance those things out, of course. Right. Yeah. Really, really interesting. I'll, I'll definitely remember from the book, Ahmed, one of the people you met yeah. at, the, at the center, right? Yeah. You write about him as, I guess in some ways, like the model, he's a, he's a blind person who, who lost his sight. He's maybe mid twenties, late twenties. That's a good question. I think he's thirties. Yeah. But you're right about him. He's real. He's a blind person who's, who's vulnerable, but not broken. You talked about kind of taking it from him in particular to just like more of like the, the archetype or more general, but um, hmm. you know, the idea that a blind person doesn't have to be broken, but a blind person can, can definitely be vulnerable. Um, mm. as you talk about, are you losing the battle? Really? You, you have some really interesting stuff about at times being just like, oh man, I almost wish like it would, the full blindness, whatever that would be for you mm. would almost just come now. Right. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but I just, I just thought Ahmed was such an interesting person and I don't want to talk about him. Like he's a, an archetype. I know he's a real person yeah. and you talk about him truly seeming to grieve that loss. But, but yeah, I just wonder about this idea of a blind person who's not broken, but at the same time is vulnerable and can grieve and and, and all those things. Yeah, yeah. I met him at the Colorado Center for the Blind. And, you know, whenever I meet somebody with RP who has less vision than I do, uh, it's like, hmm. I take that encounter really seriously because it's like, you know, a moment for me to see into my future a little bit, you know, or to like compare notes and to sort of like ask questions of somebody who, hmm. you know, is on the path that I'm on, but further along. And um, so it was really intense for me to hear his story of the really intense grieving that he had to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it helps that he's married to a therapist. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. uh, She, uh, I think she encourages him and I think she really helped him a lot, uh, obviously, but, um, Mm. but yeah, like he, he definitely made it through and, you know, he's a lawyer, working lawyer now. And, you know, he's still like, super honest and you know he's not sugarcoating anything and like last time i talked to him you know he still sounded bummed out about some aspects of his life but like this is the thing i have to be careful about too that i encounter a lot that i encounter a lot in talking to to blind people is like 
sometimes it's easy to get so stuck in the like this is happening because of blindness that like mm -hmm. it can kind of take over your life and like suck all the oxygen out like i was talking to another blind person and she was like yeah, yeah. she and she like runs a big government funded um library essentially for the blind and the mm -hmm. super important person in the in the like u.s blindness landscape mm -hmm. and she said she goes home to her mom and her mom like always like insists on buttering her toast and like making her toast for her mm. and she's just like mom like i run this like federal organization like you know i can butter my toast and then like after like the fifth time she realized like maybe my mom just wants to be a mom and like she's just making sure. me toast because she's my mom sure. you know sure. and so like i kind of feel like that way with ahmed too where i'm like is he just sort of like have like a little bit of an eeyore strain uh and that's mm. like has nothing to do with blindness and it's just like that's just who ahmed is you know mm -hmm. or like or is there some like wound of blindness you know and i and i have to be careful and i don't really i don't really have an answer to that. i don't know how well enough yeah, to yeah, like yeah. psychoanalyze him but you know he was really generous with me just about talking about his feelings about this stuff and you know and i think like with probably everybody like it's a little of both right like there's parts yeah. that are just coming from column a but then like sure experience b messes with your head a little bit and it interacts with column a plus whatever you had for lunch that day you know and it's like mm -hmm. this like alchemy of your life that yes. you it's you can you can draw out the major strains and the major ingredients but like ultimately it's this it's this kind of mixture Ooh, that's deep that's really deep yeah the uh this book will stand you know this book will be in you know disability studies courses this books will be in you know english 101 this book will be i know it has going to have legs for sure it's such an interesting read such an intimate read, but also so much greatness about the histories and the other people's involved and the foundations. So you could definitely just be like, ah, I did my life's work, but I wonder if maybe if you have any, <laughs> any, any future projects you might want to share. Thank you so much. No, no, I'll I'm going to take you up on that. I'm done. I'm out. I'm just okay. going to uh, hey. watch Disney plus and, you know, eat, eat potato chips from here yeah. on out. George Costanza. Do you ever watch Seinfeld? Yeah. 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 Right on a high note. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. No, I'm definitely trying to, continue my life um i'm figuring it out i applied for a million fellowships just now um some of them are to fund another writing project or sort of like a you know another period of like wandering in the desert mm -hmm. uh, but i definitely want to keep writing about disability um and i'm eager to write about disability beyond blindness because like just as you know like this book was like i kind of like dug as deep as i possibly could into blind sure. world and like sure. There's always more to say, but like I need a break from yeah. that land. Yeah. And also just because like my day to day now is like now that the book is out there, like I'm just deep in it with lots of blind people all the time. Not which is not to say like there's not stories there that, that I want to tell too, but mm -hmm. like I'm I'm interested in sort of like how some of this stuff that I observed and some of like the patterns and and ideas and strains of history that I encountered with 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 the research into blindness play out in other um other stories and other disabilities. And then from like a literary perspective, like the challenge is, you know, this book was not easy to write, but it was comparatively easy, I think, because I just had my own story mm -hmm. as this sort of like endless source of like, well, I can like reflect, right. you know, like I can read a bunch of other books and talk to people, but like there's always this sort of like core of my own thing that I'm grappling with. And I think for another book, you know, I can't do that again. And so the question becomes like, I think probably the thing that replaces it in terms of like being the hook for a reader without that personal narrative is like, 
making a big swing argument about like, you know, what is it about the experience of disability? I almost am thinking about like a design book, like, mm. like, like thinking about accessibility, you know, and like how you make things accessible for people and like, how can that, those ideas, you know, there's like the simple sort of basic powerful idea of universal design, but I'm trying to like think in sort of more expansive ways about that. And like, so I'm circling around those ideas. Okay. Well, thank you for, for writing the book. Thanks so much for sharing. It's so cool to hear about the background and the rationale. And my little area of the world, definitely recommending, hey, people, buy this book. It's available anywhere you can buy books. Remind me, please, of the publisher? Penguin Press. Penguin Press. You may have heard of them big time. When I share the episode, I'll be sharing all kinds of reviews. New York Times reviewed it. There's NPR. You know, you've been with, I think, Mark Maron and uh, Terry Gross, right? Yeah. Is right. that like there should be like a name for it? It's like the... Yeah, like the, the uh, like the Broadway, the Tony, and the whatever. Right? Yeah, what the what the fresh? Yeah. Hey. Oh. Ooh. Hey. So so there's a lot of different ways that you can listen and read about this book. But the best thing would be to to buy the dang book, right? Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Thank you support. so much. It's been awesome talking to you. Likewise. pleasure has been to speak with Andrew Leland. Continue good luck to him with his writing and his important work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chills at Will podcast. You can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, the digit one. Andrew is at quality, excuse me, it's not quality, it's quail T, quail like the bird, Q-U-A-I-L-T-Y. He's at quail T on Twitter as well as on Instagram. Please know that you can watch other episodes, not this one, but other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. I'm very excited that starting in February, probably around February 5th or 6th, with episode 220 with Neef Ekpaduam, and as well as this episode with Andrew Leland, I will have one or two podcast episodes per month featured on the website of Chicago Review of Books. The audio will be posted along with a written interview that is culled from the audio. A big thanks to Rachel Leone and Michael Welch at the Chicago Review. I'm so looking forward to the partnership. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag, t-shirts, and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please turn in for episode 223 with Sarah Rose Edder, the author of 2023's Ripe and The Book of X, which was the winner of the 2019 Shirley Jackson Award. Her short fiction collection, Tongue Party, was selected by Deb Olin Unferth to be published as the winner of the 2011 Cake Train Award. This episode with Sarah will air on February 13th.
For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Andrew Leland, whose work, like The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 